0: We're jumping into a new series tonight, but uh, before we do, let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump in. Uh, God, we're so thankful to be here as your people, and uh, we're so thankful that uh, you are kind and that you are good. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for the cross. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you are seated above all authority and power, and you are ruling history Uh, to the end of all things, where you renew all things, and God, we get to be with you. And so, God, we're thankful for that day. We uh, live lives that are filled with hope for that day. Uh, Jesus, we just want to be with you, and we just want to know you. And so, God, I pray that as we wait for you, that we would live faithfully in the pressures of this world, God, that we're going to see in this series this month. And so I pray that you speak through me by the Holy Spirit, and speak through us to one another tonight uh, in our encouragement even afterwards, and in our praises. Uh, We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Well, one of the things that I love about my job as a pastor is I get to... Uh, meet with so many different young adults, so many different types of people. Uh, sometimes my wife and I will even just talk about like the small group that we used to lead, and we're like, can you believe just how many different people have just like kind of come through our community? Uh, people that we knew for months, and then they're gone, and just like there's something, there's a, there's a loss in that that's kind of difficult, but there's also just like this huge gift of like I just get to, I get to know people, I get to learn their stories, and one of the things that's also very fascinating about being a pastor is you start to learn people's patterns or just like patterns about uh, of behavior or of like oh man when this happens I can almost guarantee I feel like well this will happen because I feel like it happens on replay over and over and over and one of the things that I've seen in talking with people is that a huge pattern that I just uh, that I just come across all the time and it's true for my life as well is that when people are under great pressure is oftentimes when they make some of the biggest mistakes of their life when people are under pressure, and that pressure could be, uh, it could be temptation, it could be relationships, it could be stress, or work, or financial pressure, or just pain. But there's something about, like, typically we don't compromise in our life, or do things that we never said we would do, or we don't, like, sometimes you, you find yourself in a season where you're like, who am I? Like, how did I even end up here? Is like, what is being revealed in me? And typically, that stuff doesn't happen by accident. There's something about the pressure of life that just kind of brings that, brings that out in us. And I don't know about you, but I can talk personally, some of the biggest regrets that I carry in life come from compromising in seasons of pressure. And I don't know about you, uh, but I don't wanna look back on my life and go, I wish I didn't compromise under that pressure. And I know some of you in the room right now that you would say that you're in a season of life where you're experiencing a ton of pressure. It could be something in your family. It could be even maybe an internal voice that you're battling. But one thing that I do know is how you respond to pressure really matters. And what we're going to see tonight and what we're ultimately going to see in the series this month as we look at King Hezekiah, who is a a king of God's people in the Old Testament, is that when we are under pressure, uh, we either have a choice between compromise or conviction, And I believe for many of you in the room as we walk through this series that there are, all of us have areas of compromise in our lives that God is wanting to call us out of into a faithful conviction so that we witness to God's kingdom faithfully in our world. And so uh, we're going to jump into the story, uh, and I want to tell you about King Hezekiah. But before we do, let me just read the first two verses of the story. So King Hezekiah, he, uh, it's going to be found in the book of 2 Kings, uh, specifically chapter 18, 19, and 20. And each week this month, we're just going to take one of those chapters and work through the story. It's going to be extremely relevant to our lives, and I'm really excited about it. But the first two verses of the story, just kind of like context of what's going on, it says this. Hezekiah, son of Ahaz began to rule over Judah in the third year of King Hosea's reign in Israel. And he was 25, year, 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. Okay, so Hezekiah, he's a 7'10 aged king. So do we have any dudes that are 25 in the room? Stand up, John. Stand up, stand, stand up. You said you're not, you're not 25? Oh, stand up. Stand up. You got this. You got this. Guys, behold King Hezekiah. Isn't that scary? When you picture King Hezekiah, picture John Muncie. It's going to be great. Orange sweatshirt, the King Hezekiah. Anyway, so King Hezekiah, what I love about him is he's he's a seven tenor. He's our age. He's 25 years old. And 200 years before he starts his reign, uh, the nation of God's uh, God's people, the nation uh, splits in half. Uh, there's a bunch of division, and uh, the nation splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah. And uh, and King Hezekiah reigns in the southern kingdom from 716 B.C. to 687 B.C. And while he's reigning, kind of what's going on around his scene is 14 years into his reign, so he's probably 39 years old when we're going to read most of his story, uh, Israel, uh, the God's people in the north, are completely wiped off the map. So Assyria is the, the big, bad, powerful empire of the day, and Assyria comes and completely, like, completely wipes Israel off the map. They're judged. Uh, God told them if they didn't repent of their sins and their idolatry, that judgment was coming, and and they did not and they were wiped off the map. And now Hezekiah, he's the king in the southern kingdom, and he knows he's leading a nation that is next up on Assyria's hit list. And so, what we're going to read in this story is King Hezekiah. He's leading God's people, and he's leading them in a time of great military pressure. And what I love about this story is not just that it's like in our Bibles. And I know sometimes as Christians, uh, and even out in the world, there's like skepticism, like, are these stories even real? Uh, but this is kind of a fun fact. Uh, if you can put the picture on the screen, on the screen, in uh, actually the next picture. In 1854, they were doing some excavating, and they actually discovered what's called the Rassam cylinder I think I'm pronouncing that right But essentially the Assyrians were actually kind of uh, doing history, and they were like, uh, there was this king that recorded 10 major military battles. And the scene that we're going to talk about today is recorded right there. And so the stories that we're going to learn about today, they're not just on the pages of your Bible, although they are, but these are, this is actually real historical things that we uh, have seen. And one of the things that I love about uh, this story and what I love about King Hezekiah is that although he lived so far in the past, uh, there is something about his life that is so relatable. Uh, I I experienced compromise and conviction at the same time, and you'll see so did he. He experienced massive temptation, just like many of you, and he experienced just the complexities of life, the power of prayer, even a physical sickness that was actually going to lead him to death. We'll see that at the end of uh, the series this month, but it's going to be really relatable. But one of the things that we see right off the bat at the start of his story is his deep-rooted conviction in the Lord. Let's look at verses 3 through 6 as we kind of step into the story. So it says in verse 3, He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. Uh, He removed the pagan shrines, he smashed the sacred pillars, and he cut down the Asherah poles. He broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nahushton, I think. And then Hezekiah, this is kind of like the summary of his life. It said, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. What a great statement to be said at the end of your life. And it says that there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after his time. Absolutely incredible. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, not in some things. And he carefully obeyed all the commands the Lord had given Moses. So, as we're introduced to King Hezekiah, uh, the first thing that we see is that he was a man that was characterized by a deep rooted conviction in the Lord. And uh, did you see, like, he has a really impressive kind of like spiritual resume. It says that he uprooted all the idols that were a snare to God's people. And so, what happened is God's people were supposed to be set apart. They're supposed to uh, reject idol worship and worship the one true God. And then, all of a sudden, like, the ancestors before King Hezekiah, his, his parents and his grandparents, and all the way back, they're They were characterized by compromise. And by the time he took over the throne at age 25, he said, enough, enough. I'm uprooting the idols in God's people. It says that he is more radical and loyal to Yahweh than any king in Judah so far. Think about that for a second. It said that he was like David and that he was pleasing to the Lord. And in summary, it says that he remained faithful in everything and that he carefully obeyed all the commands that the Lord had given him. And I think the first thing that we see as we jump into this story, and the thing that we're going to kind of maybe poke on a little bit in our lives, is that people of conviction are aggressively and recklessly violent toward areas of compromise in their lives. So that people of conviction are aggressively and recklessly violent toward areas of compromise in their lives. If you go to the next slide, just look at the words that it used. It said that Hezekiah removed the pa- pagan shrines. It didn't say he like kind of tore him down, he removed him. It says he smashed the sacred pillars. It says he cut down the Asherah holes. And there's even this like bronze serpent, which is from a story in the Old Testament that God used to kind of save his people. And it became actually an idol to God's own people. And it said that he actually broke it up. Like it's the idea that he smashed it. And one of the things that I want to maybe place upon your heart and, and have you consider is if, if Hezekiah, at 25 years old, can rid his land of idolatry, then we as young adults today, in 2024, can rid the land of our lives of the idolatry that we have. Uh, Growing up, I may have shared this illustration in a sermon like two years ago, so you may not remember it, you probably won't. But I remember when I was, uh, my parents would have me do uh, yard work Uh, Out in the house, you know, Arizona yard work in the summer is the worst. It's like 110 degrees. You're sweating out there. And there's always that time of year where, like, kind of weeds overtake the yard, and I remember being out there, and I was just, like, so exhausted. It's so tiring. And I remember, like, there's, like, the little weeds, you know, that you can kind of, like, pull out. Like, you barely, like, touch them, and they pull out, and you're like, okay, that's great. And then every now and then you come across, like, kind of the big, like, weeds that are in your yard. And they're, like, you know what I'm talking about? Where, you, like, you take the top off, and the top comes off, and then the root stays in the ground. You know what I'm saying? And I remember, like, there would be, like, kind of times where there would be, like, a handful of those those big weeds that are in the ground, and they're so deep-rooted that, like, you actually had to, like, you had to be, like, recklessly violent to get them, like, out of the ground. And I remember, like, there's sometimes, like, I just don't want to deal with it. That just sounds like a lot of work. And so I'd, I'd rip off, like, kind of the, the top of the weeds because I'd get paid for my allowance for doing this. And then I'd take the rocks, and I'd cover. <laughs> and I'd cover it. And, I was, and I'd be like, all right, yeah, I weeded the yard, Mom and Dad, thank you. And, 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 I, and in a sense, and I did but I didn't get it at its root. And when I look at King Hezekiah, he's, he's not just getting rid of like, the surface idols of his, of his people, but he's literally going to the root, and he's uprooting it out of the ground. He's doing the hard work of uprooting these things out of his people and out of the ground, so to speak. And as we kind of move into the story, one of the things that I want to ask you right now, I know many of you are coming into this room, uh, and maybe there's areas of your lives that are characterized by compromise, There's areas of my life that I was thinking about this. But I just want to ask you a question as we get into this is, what do you need to aggressively and violently and recklessly uproot from your life right now? What idolatry has infiltrated the land of your heart, so to speak, that you need to violently uproot from your life? Uh, Maybe it's uh, gossip with coworkers that you justify because you want to be on the inside. Uh, maybe it's a grumbling heart that you've just kind of tolerated. Uh, maybe it's an idolatrous insecurity, but we just kind of justify it as an insecurity because everybody has insecurities, but it's really like this insecurity that requires praise from people. And maybe it's, it's some sort of insecurity in your heart that you need to uproot. Maybe uh, it's a lack of sexual integrity. Maybe there is a masturbation or pornography addiction in your life that's just like, well, you know, well, just, we're just guys. Or maybe it's just like, well, nobody has to know about it. Uh, maybe it's uh, a jealousy that comes from just like a limitless scrolling on social media that just kind of reinforces this jealousy, and you know it's breeding that. But yet, you know everybody's on social media. I'm not saying you have to get off, but maybe there's something to uproot there. Maybe it's not something that you're doing. Maybe it's something that you're not doing—an idol that you're that you're just kind of participating in by not not living for God's kingdom. Maybe it's a neglect for the poor. God's put it on your heart to love the least of these, and he said it in the scriptures, and there's kind of a neglect for the poor. It could be a self-righteousness. It could be a spiritual apathy. But I want you to know what scripture calls us to is to violently uproot that from your life. I don't know if you guys are very familiar with the teachings of Jesus, but Jesus, when he talks about uh, dealing with our sin, I don't know if you've read it recently, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses very aggressive language to talk about how we deal with sin in our lives. He says if your hand causes you to sin, to cut it off. And he says if your eye causes you to sin, to gouge it out. And as humbly as I can say, I just want to some of you have some hands that need to be cut off. Some of you have some eyes that need to be gouged out. And I'm very curious. Jesus was a, you know, he was a 30-year-old young Jewish man. And I wonder if he uses that kind of violent, aggressive language to talk about how we treat sin in our lives because he's reading stories like King Hezekiah. I wonder if he's reading King Hezekiah and he sees him like smashing idolatry, removing things from his land, shattering things. And he's like, oh, I have a great idea when I teach that sermon. He kind of uses that same violent language. And what's interesting in the scriptures is God never gives his people, especially in the New Testament uh, as his people, permission to, uh, to engage in violence except for when we deal with our sin. And King Hezekiah is the perfect example to this. Now, I know some of you are going to listen to this, and you're like, you're just going to hear it, like, I'm bad, I just need to be better and not serving the idols of my life. But this, ultimately, Hezekiah is not uprooting idolatry from his life just because they're supposed to be better. He's uprooting idolatry from his life and the land of his people because idolatry taints the witness of God's people. And so when the world looks at us and go, hey, we gossip, and you gossip. Hey, we have no limits in our kind of like sexual expression. And you call yourselves Christians and neither do you. Hey, we're uh, self-righteous and kind of slander people. And you kind of do that too. It kind of taints uh, our witness. And what we see about King Hezekiah, he has this, he has this violent, I'm not tolerating anymore. I'm going to get this sin out of our people, And I think God is calling us, too, in that. And then we read in verse 7, and this is where kind of the transition starts in the story. It says that, So the Lord was with him, and Hezekiah was successful in everything that he did. And he revolted against the king of Assyria and he refused to pay him tribute. So here's what's interesting it says that, the, so because he had this faithful conviction, God was with him in everything that he did. And then there's this kind of like detail in the story where it says he revolted against the king of Assyria. And what we know from the scriptures, we don't know he was told to do that. Maybe he just had like a pride or an ego thing, but he revolted against like the world's leading empire. And in a sense, he started poking the bee's nest. He started poking the bee's nest of Assyria and the Assyrian army. All right, it's like, all right, you want to poke at us? And Assyria starts attacking Hezekiah. And when, when the pressure gets put on his life from king of Assyria, this is where Hezekiah's compromise starts to come out. And this is where the story gets really fascinating. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign. So Hezekiah is now, he was 25 when he was uprooting idolatry from the land. And now he's 39 years old uh, when, this, when the pressure hits his life. And it says, so in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, King Sennacherib, I've been trying to pronounce that all day, so we're going we're gonna to get better at it. King Sennacherib of Assyria came to attack the fortified towns of Judah and conquered them. And King Hezekiah sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. He says, I have done wrong. Sorry I poked the bee's nest. I will pay whatever tribute money you demand if you will only just withdraw from me and, and give us a break. It says the king, of the, Assyria, the king of Assyria then demanded a settlement of more than 11 tons of silver and one, to, one ton of gold. An incredible amount of money. Look at this detail. To gather this amount, King Hezekiah used all the silver stored up in the temple of the Lord and in the palace treasury. All right, so jump in the story. In the, story. the Assyrian army uh, conquers encircles uh, and puts pressure on King Hezekiah. All the towns of Judah, the outskirts of the cities are, are completely demolished. And now uh, the king is coming into Jerusalem and Hezekiah is like, oh shoot, I messed up. I might get dominated at this point. And so Hezekiah responds and rather in this moment than responding in faith, he responds in a compromise. And he goes, the Assyrian king goes, okay, give me some money. And, he, and this is what Hezekiah does. He takes... The money of the king of the one true God and gives it to this foreign king. There's nothing in the law that said Hezekiah shouldn't do this, but when you're reading the story, you're supposed to go, oh, this is a little compromise, but it's just a little one. And here's what's interesting. It, it's, it's fear. It's fear that drives him. It's fear that leads him to the compromise. And one of the things that we see right here in the story is that most of the time, and tell me if this is not true, The compromises in our life result from some sort of fear or insecurity that puts pressure on your life. There's some sort of fear, there's some sort of insecurity, and it puts pressure on your life, and then you start to make small compromises. Look at this reflection that uh, I came across this week. It says this. It says, when fear isn't fought with faith, it leads us into spiritual compromise. For example, we find it easier to to chuckle at a racist comment than to confront the prejudice of a friend. Or we participate in gossip conversations or vulgar joking because we don't want to be, quote, on the outside. Or we cross wise physical boundaries in our dating because we don't want the relationship to lose its romantic feel and crumble. And then it goes on to say, and it says this. It says, many of the compromises we make are driven by fear. Are they not? Fear of missing out. Fear of financial loss. Fear of what the coworkers or roommates will think. And instead of turning to make a stand, we follow the path of least resistance. One of the things that you have to understand about fear is if you don't fight fear, fear will fight you. In your life, if you do not fight the fear that is in your life with faith, it will fight you and it will, and it will lead you to compromise. And that's what we're going to see in King Hezekiah's life. He gives a little compromise, but compromise is never the end of temptation because false gods are never satisfied and they always come back for more. Is that not true? You're like, man, I'm feeling so much pressure. If I just com- we compromise because we want relief. Is that not true? like so if I just give into this, if I just do this one thing, it'll finally, like, I, I'll just get that. I'll just, I'll get relief. But then that, when you kind of give it away, all of a sudden the appetite of the enemy, and even in you, just get stronger and stronger, does it not? Uh, we're going to see this in King Hezekiah's life, but um, it reminded me growing up, uh, one of the rules in our house was to not feed the dog underneath the kitchen table. It's a wise boundary that my parents put up for the good of our family and the good of our dog. But I remember, you know, I was like young and I would... Uh, you know, sometimes try to get away with it. And I remember uh, one of the things that I would do growing up is, like, you kind of just, like, offer, the, you know, you see, like, the puppy dog eyes. And, you know, if you're a dog, dog lover, it's like, that. There's game over. You know, but you get the puppy the, the dog eyes, and it's just, like, you know, it's just saying, hey, please just give me just a little bit more, just a little food. And, and I know if I don't give the dog food, eventually the dog will go away. It's just time. But eventually I would just be like, okay, just, you know, give the dog a little cracker little piece of chicken, a little bit of the vegetable I didn't want to eat. And what's interesting is as soon as you make the little compromise, the appetite of the dog would just keep coming back. And isn't that how it is in your life? You just just give your flesh or you just give the enemy a little bit of room, a little bit of compromise, then all of a sudden it feels like the appetite comes back ten times stronger. And this is exactly what we're going to see in Hezekiah's life. Look at what the, the next verses say in verse 17 he compromises just a little bit and the enemy comes back for more so although he compromised nevertheless the king of assyria sent his commander in chief his field commander and his chief of staff from lachish with a huge army to confront king hezekiah in jerusalem so hezekiah gives him the money it was like well he comes back anyway And so they summoned King Hezekiah, but the king sent the officials to meet with them, Eliakim, who is the palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, the royal historian. So, in this day, oftentimes kings didn't come talk face-to-face, so the Assyrian king sent his representatives, and Hezekiah sends his representatives, and they kind of talked, because he, he compromised to the enemy, and so the enemy comes back for more. And what we're going to see in the kind of like, as we look at maybe the second half of this message, is that we're going to see specifically three strategies that the enemy uses to attack our life. We're trying to respond to Uh, the pressure of life with faith. And we're going to see that the enemy will try to inflict fear in your life. And this is exactly what we're going to see in how the Assyrians treats Hezekiah. And the first thing that we see is that when the enemy is attacking you, when the enemy is trying to get you to compromise, he's going to use his first strategy, which is propaganda. Look how this works in the story. It says, Then the Assyrian king's chief of staff told them to give this message to Hezekiah. This is what the great king of Assyria says. What are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on? Those are two great questions. That you have rebelled against me. If you lean on Egypt, because I know you've been trying to partner with them, it will be like a reed that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he is completely unreliable. He doesn't know if that's true or not. And then he goes on to say, and this is where it really gets good. He says, But perhaps you will say to me, We are trusting in the Lord our God. Do you think we have invaded your land without the Lord's direction? And he goes, The Lord himself told us to attack this land and destroy it. Which, what I want you to notice here is that the, the king of Assyria, through his representatives, is completely lying. He's completely lying, and yet his lies are really believable. His lies are really believable. He's using political and theological propaganda. He's scattering this kind of like false information over Hezekiah and over the people. And he says, listen, who are you trusting? Are you trusting in Egypt? He goes, they're useless. He goes, but don't say you're trusting in God because he's the one who sent me. In other words, what he's saying is God is, he's saying God is against you. And isn't that true in our lives when, uh, when pressure comes on our life or when we're experiencing tests or trials? Uh, doesn't, it, doesn't it feel like God says, I'm against you? Or maybe it doesn't feel like God is saying that, but you just feel. I talk to so many young adults, and I have this in my own life, where it's like when we experience pressure from tests or trials, it just feels like God is against you. And the enemy comes, and he gives this propaganda, and he says that God is against you. And then he goes on and says this, his strategy number two is when, uh, when he uses propaganda and tries to get you to believe these lies, and that doesn't work, he, he moves on to promises. And this is where it gets even more fascinating. He says this. Now he's talking to the people, and he says, don't listen to Hezekiah. These are the terms the king of Assyria is offering. So he's like, I'll make peace with you. And here it is. He goes, make peace with me. Open the gates and come out of the city. He goes, then I will arrange to take you to another land like this one, a land of grain, and new wine, bread and vineyards, olive groves and honey. And he goes, and choose life instead of death. Because if you don't choose life by siding with me, you're going to die. And here's what's interesting. The enemy, uh, he, he promises life. He promises flourishing. He promises ease. He promises blessing. He's like, listen, you don't want to suffer. He's like, I'm going to promise you life. Now, if you've spent many, uh, any amount of time in the Old Testament, specifically in Deuteronomy, you know what the Assyrian king is promising God's people is what God's people is what God has already promised his people. The enemy is offering the same thing that God himself said he would already give. So look at this. Look look what God says. For the Lord our God is is bringing you into a good land. The the king the king from Assyria goes, I'm going to take you into a good land. He goes, it's a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, of fig trees, of pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. He goes, today I've given you the choice between life and death. God is saying this. And he goes, oh, that you would choose life. Isn't that interesting? And here's why we compromise in our lives. Yes, this is an ancient story, but it has so much relevance on you today. We compromise because ultimately we believe that we can receive from the enemy what can only be given to us by God. We believe that we can receive from the enemy, that is life, that can only be given to us by God And you may be in here and you go like, "Yeah, but I feel like the enemy actually does give me more life, more happiness, more joy. I've tried to obey, and I don't feel like the life that God has promised is the one that I'm experiencing. And I think one of the reasons we experience this, and one of the reasons I experience this, is because I think oftentimes uh, we uh, get confused between ultimate satisfaction. In instant gratification. See, what the, what the scriptures teach is that what God offers is ultimate satisfaction for your life. But it's often difficult now. It can be confusing now, maybe not even immediate now, but it produces life later in your life. And maybe it's not just later in your life, but maybe it's in a week or two weeks or a couple of months. And what sin offers is instant gratification, which is like a sub life. It's easy and fun now, but it produces death later. And so what the enemy wants to get you to believe is like, the enemy is like Amazon. It's like you see what you want, you swipe that you get it, and then it's on your doorstep later that day. But then it produces death because you have no money in your bank account after. Anybody knows what I'm talking But that's how it is. But, here's, but here's, what, here's, what, here's how it is. Listen, some of you in the room, I know we giggle. Satan is offering you real lies. That are, that are promising some sort of life. And here's what's going to happen. It is, sin is fun, or else you wouldn't do it. Sin will provide you instant gratification, an instant buzz, an instant laugh, an instant you say it. But here's the thing. You have to keep doing that over and over and over and over and over, and eventually it enslaves you, it owns you, and at the end of your life, like, how did I even get here? All I was doing is saying yes to little fun things. But you know this. Anything good in your life, Anything that's ultimately good in your life takes a long time to cook. It's investing into a relationship over five years. That ten years down the road, you're like, this is amazing. It's saying yes to God's ways in your sexuality, with your money. That, like, yeah, it's hard now, it's confusing now, I don't understand. But when I, ten years, I look back at my life, I go, that was the wisest and best advice God could have ever have given me. And so that's what the enemy does. He goes, he promises you the promised land but you end, up, you end up in a land of death. God promised you is the promised land, and it might be death now, but you'll have life in the future. Is that not true? All right, let's keep going. And this is where we're going to end our story. Strategy three. So the enemy will shower propaganda on your life, lies everywhere. It's hard to tell what's true, what's not true. Uh, the enemy will give you promises that are going to be really compelling, uh, that you're like, I think he might be Right? Uh, When those don't work, the enemy pulls his ultimate power move. And this is what we're going to see in the story. He says this. He talks to the people and he says, don't listen to Hezekiah when he tries to mislead you by saying, Lord, the Lord will rescue us. Then he goes this, the ultimate smack talk. Have the gods of any other nations ever saved their people from the king of Assyria? He goes, so what makes you think that the Lord can rescue Jerusalem for me? Now, I cut out a bunch of verses, as you can tell if you've been following along in your Bible tonight. But if you read this full saying, he's like, where's the God of so-and-so? Crush them. Where's the God of so-and-so? And And he's literally like listing nation after nation. He goes, listen, your God told me to come after you. If you don't believe that, here's some promises. It's going to be better for you. But if you ultimately don't think that, he goes, what makes you think your God is going to be able to deliver you? This is what he does. He minimizes God. He essentially calls God a loser, and he plays his power move to say that I'm I'm more powerful than your God. And here, here's the thing: it's easy to read that in that story, but we know that from our own personal experience. The enemy does the exact same things in our lives. This is what he does: he minimizes God's power and work in your life, and he maximizes his own power in yours. He goes, God's power is here; my power is here. And I see this all the time, guys. And I just, I, want, I really want you guys to lean in because this is where I'm going to wrap up. Listen, God, through the gospel, through the kindness and love of Jesus, has offered you an incredible power. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He has united you with Jesus. He's not just forgiven your sin and like you have a new status and it's not held against you that you're made holy, but he's actually given you the power to change and to be transformed. We will always suffer with sin until we die. It's just part of the human experience until Christ comes to make all things new. Yes, that is true, but God has also promised freedom. Jesus says, who the Son is set free is free indeed. Paul says, you're no longer a slave to sin. God has promised you a victorious Christian life that will have some struggle in it, but God actually has given you the power to change and transform. And I know some of you have a mindset right now, and you're sitting, and you're like, "I will forever struggle with this. This is just who I am." And you've just put a period in your life where God has not put a period in your life. And this is what the enemy does. He may not make this ultimate power move like he does with Hezekiah and say, "Like I, you know, where's your God? I've defeated you." But he does. That. This is what Satan says to you. He goes, "I've got you." He goes, "You're you're always going to be like this. You're always going to have this porn struggle." You're always going to be this selfish. You're always going to have that paralyzing insecurity. You're always, your dad was like that. Your mom was like that. That sin has been in generations in your family. I've got you. God's a loser. He has no power to save you. It hits home, doesn't it? And I feel that too. And I just want, I want to tell you right now, don't let Satan do that stupid power move in your life. I remember one time, this was years ago in my life when I was battling a certain sin, and I remember I was uh, I was on a walk and uh, I was spending time with the Lord, and I remember just walking, and I was like, I cannot believe I am so stupid and keep doing some of these things. And I remember uh, I was praying and I was talking and I was just super discouraged. And I just felt like I was, I was listening to the Lord. And he was like, you've settled in your mind that I have no power to change you. And I remember there's like this switch that God's like, I'm not done with you. I'm gonna change you. But you have to partner with me and believe that I can change you. And I remember there was something that happened in that moment where I was like, it was just kind of like the lights went on and God had to get me out of the muck of my own self-pity in a way because I'm not measuring up. And, and God's just like, Don't let Satan do that to you. And I just want to say, some of you have things in your life, and it may, uprooting that in your life may be challenging. Uprooting that in your life may be generational. I also want you to know this. I didn't have time to say this earlier, that part of the idolatry that Hezekiah was uprooting in his life was generational idolatry and idols that his own dad had put up in the land. And listen, there might be generational sin patterns in your family. There might be idols in your your family that have forever be there. And God actually wants a turning point for generations to come, and you get to be that turning point. Because you believe that he has the power to save. Now, you get into the story, and you go like, okay, so Hezekiah, he uproots this idolatry. He has this faithful conviction. He has this compromise. Uh, And then this king just blasphemes the name of God. And you're left going, how is God going to respond? And you're left going, like, how, how do we actually fight fear so that we don't succumb to the lies of the enemy? The passage ends in verse 37. It says this. It says, Then Eliakim, the Shebna, and Joah went back to Hezekiah. They tore their clothes in despair, and they went in to see the king and told him what the Assyrian chief of staff had said. And you're, like, leaning in, you're like, what is, how is Hezekiah going to respond? And for that, you'll have to come next week. <laughs> but let, let, let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we are so grateful that no power can compete with you. God, we are so thankful uh, that you have promised to transform us from the inside out. So God, in this brief time of prayer and as we worship these next two songs, God, I pray that we would respond to you with faith um, and God that you would hear our prayers and hear our praise and God that you would meet us in a fresh way and so if you're in the room tonight I just want to encourage you um, I just want you to ask the Lord briefly in this moment what area in your life may be of compromise that the Lord wants to start to do some healing and transformative work and why don't you just ask the Holy Spirit what area in your life that is Would you just ask the Lord for for mercy and help to step into that in faith? Jesus, would you empower us to follow you faithfully? God, would you move us from conviction to an even deeper conviction in your presence? God, rid us of, of compromise. God, bring us into new life pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Guys, let's end our time in singing.